The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I'm sure many of you are sensing uh, something that has always been true, but um, probably for many of us more apparent these last few days after the election and just not just that, but just all the things that have been moving in our wider community. This uh, sort of interesting predicament of being a human being where <clears throat> despite our attempts to be deluded, to be distracted, we sense how anything can happen anytime. And we sense in moments when there's enough integrity, enough honesty, self-honesty, we sense the degree of exposure. And of course, not just to, for ourselves, but to other beings. I was talking to somebody earlier today who works at one of the community colleges and it's you know, just imagine what it might feel like for recent immigrants, given the political winds. Just the kind of fear and even trauma that can arise. And for all of us, you know, each in our own particular ways. And this is not just, it would be true for anybody, whoever one might have voted for. Just the uncertainty, the exposure, the fear of the future, what's happening to my country, to my people or whatever. And this kind of exposure, this clearer, deeper sense of uncertainty and uh, vulnerability can initially seem like, oh my God, this is wrong. But actually, as I mentioned earlier, it's always been this way. Now it's just a little bit more apparent. And then the real question, the question that is at the heart of our practice is, given that life is this way right now, that things are uncertain, that for many of us, at least in moments, there is a sense of exposure or rawness or grief or, you know, any number of emotions, blame, hatred, mistrust, self-righteousness. What's the skillful way to relate to all that's moving in our heart, in our mind and body? How by showing up, do we set something that's healing and beautiful and transforming in motion? How do we set something in motion that's worth setting in motion? Because, you know, in terms of karma, in terms of setting stuff in motion, every time we do the simple thing and go to blame or go to distraction, 
or go to this or go to that. We, we set something in motion. In fact, we're here now with this situation because of everything all of us have done previously. <laughs> That's how we got here. We all related in the way we've all been relating collectively and then we get here. This is the natural, unavoidable result of everything that happened previously. So we're not blaming anybody. We're just understanding that you can't get here without all of us doing whatever we've been doing the previous decades, centuries, or whatever. In Buddhism, we always say, do you want to know about the past? Look at this moment, right? Because this moment arises from where? It arises out of the past. If you want to know the future, take a look at how we're relating to the present. Because this is how we're setting in motion the future. We can't change what's showing up right now. This is how it is now. So the question is, in terms of what's being set in motion for the future, well, how are we going to relate to this? What attitudes of mind, what understandings, qualities of mind will contribute to healing, to a transformation, to really beautiful states arising for all beings? And to hold out that as confusing as it might feel in moments, uncertain as it might feel, as many strong emotions as, as might be there at times, to kind of hold out that certainly, I don't think anybody would dispute, certainly there are more and less skillful ways for me to relate to whatever's moving in me and around me in any given moment, right? So why wouldn't we be interested in getting wiser out of compassion, getting wiser about how I'm holding it. Even if we've made a lot of mistakes, you know, and went to acted out rage in a way that wasn't useful, acted out distraction in a way that wasn't useful, acted out blame in a way that wasn't useful, or any thing that appeared to us, I'm not judging, but just appeared to you directly to be, well, that didn't help. Whatever the result of that, I can feel it and it doesn't seem helpful. So we're committed to finding a way, even if we don't have a clue, just finding our way by observing how I'm relating, how I'm holding, how I'm showing up, and what is that contributing? What is that setting in motion? Now, you can probably guess or sense that that's not easy to do. That's pretty subtle work. It's hard enough just being a human being and... Uh, making, you know, navigating the choices and decisions we have to navigate in our lives. And then on top of it, for me to be tracking my experience and, and specifically tracking how I'm relating and what is that adding, what is that adding to the mix, setting emotion, that's kind of subtle work. And when we're feeling fried, when we're feeling exhausted or overwhelmed, or have really strong emotions, it's, it's literally not going to happen. Despite, I, 
despite our sense like oh, it should happen or it would be good if it could happen, it's just not going to happen in those moments. So it's interesting in the practice that, that the Buddha taught, there's sort of a, I, I like to think of it as a dance between two movements. Right? There's the movement of taking our mind and body right, and going toward safety. And initially it might be some of you just crawling into your bed and putting the cover over your head and hope that when you wake up, <laughs> it's different or something like that. You know, wishful thinking or just, I just need to shut down for a while and get a good sleep, take a hot bath, get a hug, talk to a friend, <coughs> or whatever it might be. And ultimately, when we <coughs> track all those self-soothing, taking care of, finding safety activities, right? We've got our own, hopefully, hopefully we have a couple handful of activities, go-to activities that can lead to safety. And hopefully over time, one of them will be sitting down in meditation in a relaxed way and our attention that normally will go to our story about like what's going on in the world or to the pain in the knee or right, we take that attention and we turn it in toward the heart itself, toward the mind itself, toward the experience of you could say inner space, inner stillness, inner peace, or just the energetic flow of the body of embodiment an energetic flow of the body that's not being constricted because the mind has a loving relationship with the body. So the energies of the body, we experience it as a calm, kind of a calm flow or buzz of bodily energies, unrestricted, right? And in doing that, we're on purpose, we're taking the attention away from what I have to do today, what didn't go so well today, what does this person think of me, what are we going to do to make this world a better place, how can we take care of the people that are being oppressed or being threatened. On purpose, we take our attention off of that. This, this is kind of provocative, so that we can show up to the messiness of the world in a refreshed way. It's not forever. It's for a half an hour, an hour, 10 minutes, whatever we can do, whatever we can afford in our life, we have to put it down. We have to put everything down. Everything down. That's our part of our practice, is to put everything down. And then when something like, even in the context of a sit, when something shows up, even though we're trying to put everything down, then we deal with it. In the same way we deal with an election that <clears throat> maybe it didn't go the way you wanted it to go, or the last, you know, 300 years of this country not going in the way you thought it should have gone. This is a this is a very interesting thing. When we start to unpack things, we realize how much of this uh, myth we have of the country being good is tainted. It's not what it appears to be. It's not the story we've been telling ourselves right from the very beginning. doesn't mean that there aren't worse places. There are probably a lot worse places. 
but it means that we can't just live with that simplistic, idealistic view and that suddenly something has changed. And this is what I meant early on about just the sense of exposure. But it isn't easy doing this more difficult work of leaning into the messiness and learning to be free, free to respond skillfully right in the middle of the messiness. We can't do that if we're not also doing the work of putting everything down. It's always this dynamic. And people who don't, in their own way, find this dynamic, they burn out. Or they become, you know, in terms of they're trying to make the world a better place, they start doing things that make the world a less beautiful place, a more, you know, tight place, a more mean-spirited place, a place with a lot of conflict. Where hate begets hate. And it feels so justified to meet hate with hate. Jack Kornfield tells a very beautiful story about Mahagosananda, uh, I think it's Mahagosananda, but anyway, a, a very well known Buddhist monk from Cambodia. And he, uh, with thousands of people, escaped the Khmer Rouge massacre. Some of you, I'm hopefully most of you, know about. I, I know it's several million, I don't remember how many millions of people were killed in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. And um, some escaped into Thailand and they stayed in camps. And he tells a story about uh, this very wise and beautiful monk. And just, you know, all the people in the camps, of course, had lost relatives, loved ones, friends. And it just felt so appropriate to hate, to be afraid, to get lost in those emotions. And he just had the group, you know, the, and people were even afraid to show up for his talks and his meditations and his chanting because even though, you know, Cambodia, of course, is a Buddhist country, was a Buddhist country at the time, and the people were afraid to show up because the the leaders of the regime had infiltrated the camps in Thailand too. So they were just afraid that it wasn't safe. Anyway, he would chant, do this chant over and over again from the suttas, from the Dhammapada, this collection of teachings. Very famous passage right from the beginning of this collection, the Dhammapada. Phenomena are preceded by the heart. So the whole world of experience is preceded by the heart you could say mind, ruled by the mind, the heart, made of the mind, heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls it, right? So the wheel of the cart follows the track of the ox that's pulling it. So just as certain as the wheel is going to follow the ox that's pulling the cart, that the, the mind determines the world. The way we're relating, so this is the karma that I was talking about earlier, the way we relate, how we frame, like using hate, using fear, then we live in a world dominated by fear, where everything looks scary, because the mind has framed it that way. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like the shadow that never leaves. 
He insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who brood on this, hostility isn't stilled. Right? So when we feel threatened, when something happens that is deeply disturbing, frightening, if we spend our days um, brooding on the fear, on the scariness, then what gets set in motion? He insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who don't brood on this, hostility is stilled. Hostilities aren't stilled through hostility. Regardless, hostilities are stilled through non-hostility, right? through love or compassion. This, <clears throat> this is an unending truth. Unlike those who don't realize that we're, we're, we here on the verge of perishing, those who do, the quarrels are stilled. So here he means when we really see the nature of the world that arises and ceases, that everything is changing, all of us will die. Right? It's hard, when we see that, it's hard to invest in hatred and in fear because we're making peace with it. And we see that in the time that we have, why waste time being afraid? Why waste time Hating. This is uh, one of the best definitions of wisdom in the context of the Buddhist teachings is wisdom is always interested in causes. Right? In the short time that we have and the limited places that we can act, what wisdom is interested in is how can I relate, how can I show up, how can I act here that will set something good in motion. Because that's all that matters. Spending time complaining or spending time doing anything else but studying causes, like how can I relate? What adds, what is a way of adding something to this stream of causality? You know, of what's setting, what's setting the, you know, my own mind, my own heart emotion, what's setting, what's affecting everybody else's heart and mind? How can we contribute to this soup, this swirling world that we live in? This swirling world that is collectively coming out of our attitude, how we're all relating. Where does this messy world come from? If not, what we're all adding to the soup right now. If we were all relating in this moment with understanding, with a deep compassion that we're all fragile human beings. This would not, the world would not look and be this way. There wouldn't be these injustices. There wouldn't be oppression. If we really were relating, it would cease to exist. But because the w- we relate in the ways that we relate, and for a lot of us, it's not that we're outwardly oppressing, at least it doesn't seem that way but we're inwardly choosing to be unaware. We're willingly, unconsciously, but willingly choosing to be numb or to hope that it gets better. So I want to save some time for the group to speak tonight to share a little bit and maybe ask some questions, but... Think about how this can look in your own life. 
Because if all we do is emphasize the part of leaning into the messiness, we're going to get fried, we're going to revert to hate and to fear and addiction and distraction and blaming. And if all we do is retreat and kind of search for an inner peace, uh, find a better place to live where everything's perfect. I thought Minneapolis was perfect, but now I'm, you know, and it's like, maybe I won't leave the house. You know, it's that sort of mentality that uh, um, we become more and more sensitive to the meanness and we put ourselves in a very little box where we can only be around this person or these two people in these situations at these times because the world's just too overwhelming. I mean, I totally see the point of retreating, taking a break from the news, taking a break from you know, these kinds, certain kinds of conversations or whatever. If the idea is to be able to re-enter the world in a more bright, fearless, fresh way where we can study the causes, how to set something in motion that's trustworthy, that's beautiful. So how does that look in your life? How do you trust the importance of retreating, putting the whole world down, taking the attention and turning it away from the world on purpose for a period of time, dropping it? And when the mind picks it back up, you say, oh honey, totally okay to pick it up, but not now. Now we're putting it down. Now we're noticing that it can be put down. Now we're noticing the relief of letting go. As if we're dying, because we're going to have to put it down when we die. Every night when we go into deep sleep, we put it down. So let's practice putting it all down for our set. And notice why we pick it up, and then put it down again. And when we pick it up, notice that, oh, that's interesting. And this is what it feels like, that compulsion to be attached, to struggle, to want to fix to want to hate, to think, if only, then I'll be happy, then I'll be safe, to get caught in some story, this promise that's never kept. If only, if only this hadn't happened. If only, you know, the country were this way. If only they understood this. What, what is the effect in our mind and heart when we do that spinning? So we practice putting it down, putting it down, putting it down, until we get successful, good at, Finding the mind that hasn't picked anything up, the mind that's empty. You could also say the mind that's peaceful and blissful and bright and unified, collected. The mind that's realizing how to be in the world, but of course in a very secluded world, but how to be in the world without fear. So we get a taste of equanimity, non-fear, non-striving, and then our sit's over. And then we see now how can this, to whatever degree we realize that in our set, this equanimity, this non-fear, how can I bring this into the kitchen as I leave my meditation space and I look at the dirty dishes? Something relatively simple, right? To see the dirty dishes or this mess that our partner left. <laughs> you know, or something that's more challenging. It's one thing when the dishes are the dishes we left. left. But now it's somebody who shouldn't have left them, left them, right? And then, you know, then even worse when we turn the news on. So then we take that equanimity, the peace, and we say, well, 
yeah, that equanimity arose because of seclusion. Now what does it look like as I move into the world where people are acting out their conditioning, the cultural conditioning, their genetic conditioning, we're all beasts, right? So how do I show up to that? How do I sustain that balance, that clarity, that love, that compassion? Compassion can be fierce, right? We can speak up and do what needs to be done, but not because we're demonizing someone, because we understand that person is just the collection of their causes and conditions, their cultural conditioning. doesn't mean I'm not going to stop them, but I'm not going to hate them when I try to stop them. I'm going to understand. They need to be stopped. They need Something needs to change here. Because otherwise we perpetuate the circle of hate and mistrust, which is how we got here. So it would be nice to hear from some of you this, especially, I mean, anything, of course, that you feel like sharing or any questions you want to ask about what I've said. But if you feel like sharing specifically about how you successfully retreat and put down the world and the kind of refreshment, the kind of stillness, the kind of peace, the kind of resiliency that comes from having dropped it. And it doesn't just have to be your sort of formal meditation. There may be other ways you do this. And then how you bring that balance, how you find the edge, the edge where you're getting enough exposure to vulnerability, to hate, to greed, but you're not confused by it, right? You're just on that edge where you can sustain that love, that stability of mind, that balance in the face of greed, anger, delusion. And not just other people's greed, anger, and delusion, but your own that's getting triggered, right? Because you've got to meet that with balance too and with understanding and with forgiveness and with compassion. And how you do that, how do you lean in? Where are the messy places? How do you choose to go into that? Right? It'd be nice to hear from some folks. So remember, you got to point the mic like this at your mouth, not up and down, and pretty close. And it's nice if you say your name. And remember, on Sunday nights, we do record the talk for the wider community. So just think of that when you share You know what, what's appropriate to share. So anybody like to begin? We have about 25 minutes, so a little bit more time tonight to hear from each other. How do you find that dance? Yeah, please start us off. So straight back here. Hi, can you hear me? I'm Spartacus. Not really, but um, <laughs> I just thought I'd lighten it for a second. Um, I, I've noticed that there's a big feedback loop that goes on and we get caught up in on Facebook and I see so many of my friends and family echoing the anger and hate that I saw at Trump rallies and, and then I, now I see my liberal friends with that same hate and anger and the way that I deal with it is through, in my practice, um, in dealing with my own anger and towards myself mostly and, and shame is through self-compassion and forgiving myself first and, and reminding myself that it's okay and that I'm going to be okay and I'm going to be great and that they're okay too. And by forgiving myself, I can start forgiving everybody else and, and move forward from a place where you can accept people because if we can't accept them, 
we're going to marginalize each other in this feedback loop of of anger and and shame and and hate thanks yeah, yeah thanks part of this and just i'm just going to put it out because i want to hear from more people but this is such an interesting dynamic like how to speak truth um and how to stay true to values that have proved to be true proved to be proved to be skillful trustworthy like kindness like mutual respect so how to stay true to that and not throw people out of our hearts that seem to be violating those values it's such an interesting dynamic like how to um, respect difference and at the same time realize no no that that value I really care about I don't have an answer but I just kind of want to state that really clearly we have to hold the I don't know what the right word is we have to the tension of that between like like I'll just give you a more concrete example of you know our president-elect um, sort of using the birth certificate issue for many years which to some of us seemed like um, kind of a racist thing to do and uh, and then Barack Obama our president inviting him in a couple of days after the election and like do we how like do we normalize things what do we say and I don't have an answer here, but I I want to name that tension because it's okay to not know what to do with people who have different values than we have or somebody has, right? I don't know, what, and that may be the start to say to each other, and and if we're talking to somebody where this seems to be true, it's like I don't know what to do with this difference in values, but maybe. Let me state my values, and then let me hear what your values are. And this is sort of part of the uh, nonviolent communication that I know some of you have done training in. I've done a little training in it as well, where you always start when there's a conflict by seeing if you can hear what each other's needs are, which this would be just a, a riff off of that. And so needs and values. What are your values? What are your needs? And then really listen and then repeat it back. Okay, what I heard you say, these are your needs, these are your values. And then ask the same. Can you repeat back what you heard me say my needs and values are? And to gen- it might be like healing just to say, you know what, we have very different values. Or, you know what, we have different values, but we don't, it's not like you disagree with my values or what you say I don't necessarily disagree with, but, but we're talking about different things. I don't know. But I feel some tension there. Yeah, who who's next? Want to pass it to Brad in the front row here? I'm Brad. Uh, at work, I we had some people who even stayed home on Wednesday, and even by Friday were s- still pretty devastated by the election. And I was feeling, what can I do to make it better? I realized there was nothing I could do to actually make it better, but I just started to be kind to people. And I knew that was all I could do for now. And telling them it'll get better would have not been helpful. So I was really struggling because I wanted 
to help them to not feel so much pain. Cause, and their pain was very real, obvious. But all I could do was be nice that day and for the rest of the week. And my, they're in my prayers, so I'm hoping tomorrow things are a little better. But I didn't have any other answer than to just be kind. But somehow that's different than being helpless and despairing, right? Because mm -hmm. we know we can do something, and that's true. We can be kind, and that's something. It's not an answer. It doesn't resolve the very real trauma and fear that people have, especially people of color and other marginalized groups, recent immigrants. But it's, it's at least we're staying in the game, you know, as opposed to distraction and disconnection and uh, giving up. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, please. You want to just pass it along? Might be faster than giving it to Jill here, or Jude, rather. Hi, my name is Roseanne. And I had an experience about that this week. Uh, it it's, it's occurs to me that we're coming up on the holiday season where we, we're, we're with our families, we're with friends, and we are in groups of people where there's a lot of difference of feelings about what has occurred through this whole campaign and election. And maybe in the room tonight. And in the room tonight as well. And so I had my, uh, Thursday, I meet with, um, I have three other friends, women friends, that I, we get together once a month, and I happen to host them on Thursday. And I knew that we had one person in that group who had opposing view to the other three. And so during the whole campaign, we never discussed anything about it about the whole election, nothing, nothing about, the, about politics at all. And before they came, I thought, you know, that isn't right either, that we, um, maybe that's the way it will have to be, but I thought as long as I was hosting, I, was, I just decided to talk about it and to name it, to call it out and say that we can maybe, for, you know, the topic isn't who voted for whom, but where we go from here. And we just each took a five minutes to just talk about how we felt when we went into the voting booth. That's all we, we started that way. And it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like we were ended up just hugging each other. We don't, we're never going to hate each other. But what I didn't like was the silence. For a long period of time, there was so much silence, and I thought, we can't go ahead like that. We all care about each other, about our country, about, and we also have to learn, we have to, we have to also balance with some trust and, you know, all the varied feelings that we had. So it helped a lot for us to be able to just open it up and talk about it. And I would expect that there's going to be other groups of people I'm going to be in that, that that's going to come up. If, if we, do, we have to kind of set new, a new normal for a while. Yeah. And if Th you need practice you. with that, you know how um, under columns, all the comments, you can practice, like, so there's a political co column that somebody has a strong view, and then 400 people put their comments. You can use your practice so you're reading it and, and realize each one you read, because people, they're unguarded with their emotions when they're doing those online comments. And you can realize there's a human being and that comment is coming out of a particular frame, a particular set of suffering, you know, or expression of suffering and confusion and some wisdom, you know, this whole kind of what makes a human being human. And, and just let it in, like let it land. Okay, and then the next, and then the next. 
Because normally when we read it, it's like who we agree with and who we disagree with. But to kind of meet the person, so then we can do what you were talking about in our real communities. It's like, like realize that this person has feelings. They have values. They have needs. I wonder what they are. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Who would like to go next? All the way in back? Doug? Or go ahead, and then we'll move back. Um, I'm Tom, and uh, like many here, I'm pretty sure that that next day at work was um, had some uh, interesting moments. Uh, three that I can think of is that you just mentioned the, the silence, or you mentioned the silence, like being on the elevator with somebody that you'd see day in, day out, and you're kind of like, you know, going to skip the part about how to go Tuesday night. It wasn't like a, a game that you both saw. It was mm-hmm. it was kind of a big deal. And then there's a guy that I've worked with for 15 years. And I was talking to somebody, and we weren't really, like, going all out there, but we were both kind of looking at each other like, whoa, you know. And this guy who's who's the gentlest soul I know, <laughs> he, he kind of stood up with this great big grin and said, you're welcome. And I just thought, wow, where did... Just like what we've been talking about, where did that? Um, I I've become very curious about like what that is. It's sure not going to help me to kind of go, you know, just write people off. I don't like being written off. Nobody likes being just dismissed. You know, it it doesn't go anywhere. And so it's been uh, at least something to do for me, other than just kind of sit there and shake my head. Um, to, I mean, I, I'm going to sit down with this guy on, on uh, Monday, and I found a couple other people from that voted differently than I did, and um, just not debate him. I don't know the facts, who did what, who said what, when what, any of that. I really don't have all that stuff. There's no point for me to go there, but just say, like we've been talking about, like, okay, you feel this way. Tell me about that. You know, why? Tell me more about that. You know, and, and to try to get a, a better sense that, you know, um, I don't know, that we just we have way more in common than with anybody anywhere than than not. And that's something to work with, I guess. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, Thank you. Uh, My name is Doug. And actually, I have two things I want to say, first about Trump and then about meditation. And the the first, of course, is Trump bothers me a great deal. I I hear he's going to put a climate change denier in charge of the EPA. There's rumors he's going to have Sarah Palin be in charge of the Department of Education, things that just don't seem possible. Uh, But what I really want to talk about there is I I was reading recently, I think it was about President Polk, although it could have been President Pierce, somebody back there, and the start of the Spanish-American War. And we essentially baited them into a war. We were much more powerful. Uh, We offered them a humiliatingly small amount of money for the area that's now California and Arizona and New Mexico and Utah. And, um, of course, they said no, and then we, we found some pretext to go to war with them, and we, of course, beat them. And it was very bloody, and uh, they, they still have, in the end, we just took over a, it was a children's military school, but it was just in the way tactically, and, of course, we killed them all, and they're still, I guess, in Mexico City, some statues uh, to these children. And then, 
the, what I want to talk about, though, relative to that is suffering, because out of that, we got the states of California, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and maybe Nevada, and I don't think anybody's moving out of those states. Nobody's giving that up. And even in a general sense about the American Indians, we certainly did a lot of things that were very cruel, but nobody's giving their house to the Indians. Nobody's giving the land back. And the point of that is I think we all participate in suffering, whether we want to admit it or not. Every day we are participating in the suffering uh, of others from some time in the past. And as, as much as I disagree with Trump, he's just one more person that is himself probably suffering and, and is, you know, sees things in a way that I think is, is pretty unbalanced. But I, it's, I'm not in a position to say, you know, he's the big evil one because it's just impossible. We are all a part. We all have gained from somebody else's suffering, and when I, this is something I have to appreciate as I go through. And then secondly, just technically on meditation. When I meditate, I, I'm working very hard on trying to think through my breathing, and I realize my thoughts are trying to get me to see red where it's really green, that I've learned how to view the world in a way that helps me cope. But that way of coping is not particularly balanced or healthy. And uh, I try to, you know, just think through my lungs so that I'm not using my mental thoughts and then let what arises. And it's usually a state of being, but it's often not a very happy one. Like, it's very cynical. I realize how cynical I'm being in life or how, you know, I'm, my own attitudes are causing a reflection on other people. Uh, and I don't know how to get to the point of really feeling peace or, or calm. But So that's a lot in a couple of minutes. But. Yeah. But just a, a short answer to the second point about meditation practice. The practice is training the mind to be interested in the sensations, not the thoughts about the breath, but the physical activity of breathing, right? Because it's, like I was saying earlier in the talk, it's really a practice of putting down the world. And so when my mind is fully present with just the activity of breathing in, or just more generally the sensations of the body sitting, if it's fully attuned to that experience and tracking it moment to moment, how can I, how can the mind be involved in neurotic activity? Can't do those two things at the same time. So when we absorb in, as we open up to breathing in, breathing out, the mind necessarily has to let go of neurotic activity, worrying, trying to get somewhere in my practice, wondering if this person's better at meditation than me, all that stuff drops away. It recedes into the background because of the quality of interest in the present moment reality of breathing in, breathing out, or the present moment reality of hearing, or whatever it is that the mind is aware of in the moment. It doesn't really matter what the phenomena is that the mind is using to collect the energy of the mind with. Could be the breath, could be the whole body, could be hearing, can be a mantra, can be a visualization, can be knitting, it can be anything. But it's really about can the mind be be willing to open and sustain that interest, sustain that full presence with the present moment reality, right? So that all of that cognitive activity is released, put aside for a while. Yeah, thank you, Doug. Yeah, anybody? Yeah, please. Um, what I see a lot is um, in various aspects of my life is that 
and it's quite strange to me, actually. I, I was like this originally um, just a couple of days ago, but people seem to be reacting to what will happen largely or what they think will happen. There's nothing really been happening yet with the current events. And so in talking with people who are, I view, wiser than myself, and some of the things you were saying as well is that, well, why not focus on what is happening or what think about what is happening? But then what I think in my mind, okay, so what in this country we have an incredible right, which most of the world doesn't. We have the free speech. We're not living in Kazakhstan. We're not living in 1960s Cambodia. We're not living in 1960s Alabama. And um, so we do have an obligation to speak up, to exercise that right, I feel, because thousands of Americans have, have died for it, for that right. So what happens when, when something that is happening that I need, I feel the need to speak up with but to do it in a mindful and, and um, passive resistance way. It's kind of like Gandhi. Gandhi comes to mind a lot in this sense. Well, so that's kind a, of... How about just a parent? How many of you are, have raised kids? So a lot of people in the room. And haven't there been times, moments as a parent, where you had that fierce compassion, that fierce response to take care of the kid? Right? Now... Was that un, was that sort of unwholesome? I mean, I know sometimes, but I'm talking about times you didn't have time to freak out. You didn't have time to get established in fear. It was just that movement of fierce compassion or fierce love. So I think it's more common than we think. The question is, how do we do it um, in more and more places in our life? Like let, because what we think is we got to figure out what to do. But it's actually more about the attitude is more important than the plan. So I'm going to show up with compassion. And I'm going to let my response and the strength of my response come out of that instead of, well, what should I say? What should I do? But instead of getting the detail, we get established like, I care. I care about the suffering that I'm sensing or seeing or hearing about. I care enough to show up, to respond. But I don't know what to say or do, but I'm going to show up and see what I do and see what I say. So what we're doing is taking responsibility for, for the frame of compassion, like really feeling that movement of heart. I care. I'm in this with all of you. And I think people, a couple of people have said that too. It's like, how to, how to, like there's this new thing. I don't know if you've heard about the safety pin. Anybody hear about that? It's like, like, I'm safe. I care. And that's a, that's a start to kind of keep us in this frame, I do care. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to turn it around, but I care. And I'm going to stay there. And because I'm staying there, I might know how to respond. And that would be really interesting for us to learn. Like, oh, I didn't think of this, but it just I ended up doing it in this situation. I never would have thought of saying that to this person. But it came right out of my mouth. I don't know. I kind of cut you off. I don't know if you had more to say. Yeah. Thanks so much for bringing that up. Still have a couple minutes. Maybe time for one or two more people. Yes, please. So um, I'm a first-generation Muslim, and I also work at an immigration law firm. And I've been hearing everything everyone's saying, um, but I am just like caught, not even in a cycle, but just in a 
just a permanent feeling of terror and also not sure what to tell any of my clients. Um, and so the uncertainty and the fear, how do you step out of that? How do you get your mind to move beyond that into a place of compassion? Because I know that's the end goal and that's how you move beyond that. But when you, I know enough about immigration law and civil rights to be absolutely terrified right now. Um, so how do you move beyond that when you have that logical knowledge of what's going to be happening very soon um, to you and your family and your friends? How do you move beyond that into a place of like coming back into the body and the self to actually like do something? Yeah. Well, first, the, the important thing is not to um, somehow idealistically tell ourselves that we shouldn't be afraid. Right? And to acknowledge like the way you're reading the facts, to like even that ability to name what's going on, notice that composure. Like because that takes a little distance in a sense, like, oh yeah, this is really this is really bad. And the thing is, we're not gonna like we can realize that in that moment that I'm not really going to be able to, just basically what you said, I'm not going to be able to show up with our clients or with these folks when I'm in a state of being stunned or paralyzed with fear. Like, I'm not going to be helpful. So then what can we do? Well, you know, (laughs) the best thing to have done is to to have started the practice a long time ago, right? (laughs) Because, (laughs) I mean, the, the real... Uh, sort of essence of the practice is to be unafraid even at the moment of death, even when the rug's been pulled up from under us. And so there is a place in practice where we're realizing that there isn't anything we can hold on to. And when we find the heart or the mind that's okay with life being as insubstantial, vulnerable, impermanent as it is when we're when we find that place of peace in the middle of this world then we can find a way to keep it alive then when we're doing the work that we do in the world but now given that there is this so basically it's all about safety where can you find and i just in a total pra- practical way where can you find safety in your communities that you trust, um, basically whatever works. And then in our meditation practice, it's like finding a place where it does feel safe. Like when, when fear has been triggered, then it's like it's that stress response, you know. And so what helps the body and mind feel safe enough to just be in your experience of your body instead of like looking for the enemy or the danger in the room. So this is like even things like um, loving kindness practice can be really skillful because the thing about the reflection on love and compassion is there is the fear, but it seems like the fear is just causing this reaction, but we can flip it in a way where we realize, oh my God, honey, this is overwhelming and I care about that. Right? So there's a way to take what's really painful and to realize 
not in an idealistic way. I do care that this is so heavy, this is so scary. And just to be on that level of self-compassion, this isn't easy. Because now what you're doing, it's like a trick. You're realizing the heart that cares instead of realizing the heart that's paralyzed in fear. Now you're realizing the heart that cares about the heart that's paralyzed in fear. I know it sounds a little weird, but it's actually available as a spiritual move. And the more we practice it, the more it becomes the way the mind frames the fear, like the one who cares about it, the one who's willing, like the grandmotherly love, like, honey, I know it's hard, but I, 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 and I know it doesn't seem this way, but everything's workable, including death. Everything's workable. That's what we need. We need to be that mirror for each other in, in these times where we're coming from that place, even if it's just a faint place. Maybe our insight isn't that deep or isn't that uh, resonant, but as best we can, we want to come as often as we can from that place. It's workable. Showing up is better than closing down. Keeping the heart open is the way. Hate is not the way. Responding fearlessly, saying what needs to be said, is the way. Closing down, hoping that it goes away, is not the way. Like We have to mirror that like it's okay when things are really uncertain, where bad things can and probably will happen to some degree. It's just a question of to what degree, right? Bad things are already in motion. They were in motion before the election, right? It's just more, more obvious, more painfully obvious now. So the question is, it's like uh, the Titanic, right? That huge ship. You know, if they saw the iceberg, it's not like they can turn on a dime. Something with that much, that big, that much momentum, it takes sustained effort to turn the thing around. Or things like racism and fear and xenophobia and all this sort of misogyny and sexism and all the ways that we oppress each other. That that has momentum. So just because it has seemingly enormous momentum is giving up? No. So we need to sort of uh, realize that I've, I have role models. I've seen people be unafraid. I've seen people, I've seen myself in moments relate skillfully, fearlessly. Right? I've also seen myself in moments shy away from doing the right thing, from speaking up from responding with compassion, being stingy, being afraid. Right? I've seen both. And to some degree, I know the difference. I know what stinginess and fear and closing down, I know what that sets in motion for myself and for others. And I know what the other sets in motion. So we have to somehow see that fearlessness in other people to kind of, it's like a sympathetic vibration. When you see somebody being unafraid, you tune into that part of them. Not the other parts that are not so skillful. But that little thread, you see that. And, and sometimes you're the light that people are tuning into because in those moments, you're the one who's unafraid. You're the one who's established in love and fearlessness, right? And then you lose it. But there's somebody else. And so we have to sort of find these little threads of wisdom and compassion 
and fearlessness to kind of keep it alive. And, this, and it's really about understanding that love is unstainable. You really, because it isn't about, love isn't about the particular conditions. But that's, that's a insight. That's something that human beings discover because we're interested in looking. In any case, we have to leave it here. Thanks so much for bringing that up. Take a few moments. Appreciate being here together, letting go of the words. May all of us find ways to be wise and skillful allies for each other and especially those people who feel threatened and afraid and are being oppressed in different ways, marginalized, caught in poverty, racism, and all the other ways that we act out our fear and hate, confusion. We learn how to be good allies. May we set compassion and love in motion. May it be our way. May we leave behind fear and hate and greed and delusion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.